I have re-entitled this last division of the book of Malachi. I think before I've had down uh, um, the final prediction, the coming of Elijah, or the prediction of the forerunner, of Christ's forerunner, uh, the coming of Elijah. I have re-entitled it, The Final Plea and Prediction of the Lord. Now, although this section is very small, it is very important. It contains the Lord's final plea and final prediction. Not only his final plea and prediction in this little book of Malachi, but his final plea and prediction in the whole Old Testament. With it, the Old Testament was to be concluded, and silence was to reign for some four centuries. And these verses are not only a fitting conclusion to Malachi, but to the whole of the Old Testament revelation. They look back to all that God has revealed of himself in what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and of which everything else in the Old Testament is but the illustration and the interpretation, whether it be the prophetical books or whether it be the poetical books or whether it be the historical books. All of them are but the illustration and the um, interpretation of the first five books of the Old Testament. And these three verses look back to all that. And they comprehend it all. And they not only look back, but they also look forward and on to the fulfillment of all prophecy in the Old Testament. As if they gather everything together into just a verse or two. That is, all the prophecies in the Old Testament book after book, condensing it all into one or two sentences and looking on to the final fulfilment of it all. We can see this in the mention of two very well-known figures in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Uh, it's rather interesting that in these last few verses of the Old Testament you have the mention of these two great Old Testament <coughs> figures, Moses and Elijah. In fact, as I believe we said when we, uh, in our introduction to the book of Malachi, these two represent the whole Old Testament era. Moses represents the law, the first five books, and Elijah represents the prophets, the former prophets and the latter prophets, which is a very large section indeed of the Old Testament. Between them, they in fact represent the whole of the Old Testament era. Even by the time of Malachi, in the day in which whoever Malachi was, in the day in which he um, preached and, and prophesied, these two were looked upon as the two great representatives of the old covenant and of the whole era 
in which even Malachi uh, lived in. And by the New Testament, this is a study in itself, which we're not going to go into, but by the New Testament times, these two reigned, Moses and Elijah, reigned supreme in the imagination of the Jewish people. You've only got to read the New Testament and the, the queries and the arguments and the discussions that not only the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and so on had with the Lord Jesus, but even the people themselves. To discover that there were two figures who recurred again and again in their conversation and their discussion. One was Moses and the other was Elijah. To the Jewish people in the time of our, of our Lord, um, Moses represented the far distant past, a great, austere, august figure who symbolized the beginnings of the nation and who symbolized all that was highest and best in the nation. And Elijah, oh, and how often this name Elijah comes up. They asked, for instance, John, was he Elijah? Was he the prophet that was to come? They, you remember another time Herod said when he heard about Jesus, is he Elijah? And when the Lord Jesus was dying on the cross and cried out, Eli, Eli, lama samachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They said, he's calling upon Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes. Give him something to drink quickly. Keep him alive. Let's see if Elijah comes and rescues. Elijah was, was absolutely embedded in the imagination of God's people in the New Testament because he didn't represent the far distant past, but he represented the past. And more than that, he was to come again. And this is the thing that captured the imagination of the Jewish people. He was to come again. And he was to herald a new era altogether. He was going to initiate the coming of the Messiah and of the Messiah's kingdom. So there is a sense in which these two truly represent the whole Old Testament time. It is in fact most interesting to note the parallel between these two lives. Now I don't suppose there are many in this room who have ever noted that there is an intended parallel in the life, lives of Moses and Elijah. For instance, Mount Horeb, which is an, only another name for Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb marked in both lives the high water mark of revelation and experience. Now you will remember, if you turn back to Exodus chapter 3, you will discover there that after 80 years, Moses met God, and God met Moses. And where did he meet him? He met him at Mount Horeb in a burning bush. It was a fire. And it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, uh, the fire that was the thing. It was the voice that spoke from out of the fire in Mount Horeb that absolutely captured Moses. And if you look on to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 2, you will discover that some years later it was at Mount Horeb that the Lord met Moses face to face and spoke with him. Do you remember? 
and gave him the law and showed him the, the figure of the pattern of heavenly things, the tabernacle, and also gave him the covenant which he was to make with the people. It was at Mount Horeb. So Mount Horeb marked the high water mark in, um, spiritually in Moses' life. But the interesting thing is it marks the high water mark in Elijah's life. Now, Elijah had a long and very interesting career before ever he got to Mount Horeb. But if you look at uh, 1 Kings chapter uh, 19 and verse 8 and the following, you will discover that after that tremendous triumph on Mount Carmel, when, uh, when fire came out of heaven and consumed the prophets of Baal, Jezebel said, I'm going to do the same thing to Elijah. And Elijah's faith failed, and he fled for his life. And, a, and an angel met him, you remember, and cooked him an evening meal and put him to sleep, and then woke him up in the morning and cooked him a breakfast, and then sent him on his way in the wrong direction uh, to 40 days, and 40 nights he went uh, fleeing. And the angel had helped him to Mount Horeb. But it was to Mount Horeb that he came. And when he came to Mount Horeb, do you remember? The Lord said to him, Elijah, what doest thou here? But before the Lord said that, um, Elijah saw what he'd been used to in his ministry. An earthquake. And then it, it subsided. And then a wind like a gale that, that rent the rocks. And it subsided. And then a fire which consumed all. It went. And lastly, uh, a sound of gentle stillness, still, small voice. And when Elijah heard that still, small voice, he wrapped his mantle round his head and bowed down to the ground. Now, it's a very interesting thing that Elijah was the kind of man who could stand upright when there was an earthquake and when there was a gale and when there was a fire. But when he heard God, he fell on his face. He fell on his face. This was the kind of man that Elijah was. Now, it was the high water mark in Elijah's life, Mount Horeb. Isn't it interesting? These two men, both of them, it was at Mount Horeb that they met the Lord in similar circumstances in many ways. And then again, it's not only that, both were workers of miracles, of which, in which in many cases there is a similarity. If you look, I'm not going to go to the door, but you can look it up. Uh, there's a most amazing similarity in the miracles that they worked. Both saw God working through fire. Now, this is very interesting. Moses saw fire come out and consume the rebels. Uh, a number of times he saw God in a great fire. And Elijah was the prophet of fire. Again and again he saw God working in and through fire. Here again is this similarity. Both were prophets and men of fire. An even more interesting similarity, both ended their lives, their ministries, in mysterious circumstances. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 34, it is most mysterious. The way the Lord tells Moses to go up into the Mount Pisgah alone, and he gives him supernatural sight so that he can see from the, from the, the summit of the mount the whole of the promised land. And then, and then by the word of the Lord, 
Moses died. And no one knows where he's buried. You know, the sepulchres to this day are still in Israel and Jordan of many of the great saints, but you don't know where Moses' sepulchre is. It was never discovered because he died in the most mysterious circumstances and, says God's word, the Lord buried him. And we're given an even more strange thing. In Jude, we're told that even the archangel Michael does not bring a railing accusation against the devil when the devil contended over the body of Moses. Now, these are all things we can't say with them this evening, but you see, there's a mystery attached to this, isn't there? It's most remarkable. The rabbis, you know, put an awful lot upon this little word. He died by the word of the Lord. We've put the word of the Lord, the word actually at the mouth of the Lord. The mouth of the Lord. And the rabbis said that God kissed Moses and he died. You know, they were a bit sentimental uh, about Moses. But it's certainly a very beautiful Jewish tradition that in the end, uh, Moses died as God bent over him and gave him a good night kiss. But... Um, Elijah, if you look at uh, 2 Kings and uh, chapter 2, you will find also died in, in uh, didn't die, but uh, was taken, translated in most mysterious circumstances. Suddenly, we're told, a whirlwind came, and Elijah went up in the whirlwind into heaven. Chariots came and took him, and he went into heaven. Mysterious circumstances, a similarity between these two men, the way they ended their ministry. But there is an even more remarkable similarity. Do you know who succeeded Moses? A young man. And do you know how that young man's uh, authority was established in the sight of all Israel? By splitting the Jordan and going, off, going across it miraculously. Do you know who succeeded Elijah? The young man Elisha. And do you know how his authority was established in the eyes of the schools of the prophets? By casting the mantle of Elijah upon the waters of Jordan, and they split in two, and he went across. Now, isn't that a remarkable similarity between Moses and Elijah? If you want uh, uh, verses for that, then you'll have to look up Joshua chapter 4, and, verse, and especially look at verse 14, and 2 Kings chapter 2. Read the whole chapter. And there, between those two, you will see the similarity. And, of course, there is one last and wonderful similarity between Moses and Elijah. Of all the great figures of the Old Testament, they were the two selected by God the Father to appear with the Lord Jesus Christ at his transfiguration. So, these two appear on either side of the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They talk about his, his exodus. His exodus. Uh, which he was going to accomplish uh, on the cross. Now, all this is surely not coincidence. Um, it, it reveals an intended, uh, an intended similarity, an intended parallel. The message of these last verses could be summarized in two words. The words Remember, verse 4, remember, and uh, you won't find the second verse, but it sums up what is in verse 5, expect. These three verses can be summed up in these two short words, remember, expect. With the first, Moses is connected. 
remember Moses. And with the second, Elijah is connected. Expect Elijah. <laughs> remember Moses and expect Elijah. And if this was the Lord's word to his own at the end of that age, is it not also to us at the end of the age in which we are living, we also need to remember and to expect. In one sense, everything is summarized in these two words. Remember, look back and remember. Remember the way of the Lord with you. Remember what God has done. We shall say a bit more about that in a moment. And expect. Look forward in faith to a glorious confirmation of everything God has purposed and promised. Look forward in faith to a day which is coming when the Lord is going to return and when forever he and his own are vindicated and glorified. In a very real sense, it is exactly this that we are intended to do at the Lord's table. We are intended, as we gather at the Lord's table, to remember and to expect. To remember what? To remember the Lord. To remember Him. To remember His covenant. To remember his sacrifice. To remember his love. And we are to remember him until he comes. We are to do it until he comes. We are to expect him. Do you know there is a sense, and I know so often the Lord's table, in, or our attitude to the Lord's table, lacks in this matter. But you know we should be able to approach the Lord's table every time as if it's the last time. We're gathering round that table. It may well be that between then, when we're there at the table, and when we next intend to gather round the table, the Lord may have come. That's the expectancy that there should be around the Lord's table. We're remembering him, yes, but not in a kind of um, uh, memorial time, but remembering all he has done because he is alive and because he's come. It's only until he come. We are to expect and to await his coming and his reign and his glory. Well, now let's look just a little more closely at these two words because they're, they're, uh, they're, they're as I've said, they summarize these three verses. And in summarizing these three verses, there's a sense in which they summarize the whole book of Malachi. And in summarizing the book of Malachi, they summarize the whole Old Testament. It is just as if the Lord makes a plea to us. His last plea of the Old Testament. Remember. And just as if he makes a final prediction and says to us, now, first of all, remember, verse 4. What are we to remember? What are we told here in verse 4 to remember? We are told to remember the law of Moses, even statutes and ordinances. Now, what was this law of Moses, even statutes and ordinances? What was it? Well, it, to put it very simply, 
it comes back to another word that we've got again and again in the book of Malachi. It is the covenant that the Lord made at Mount Horeb, or at Sinai. That's all. And what does it embrace? Well, just think. Just think for a moment. What does that word, the law, embrace? It not only embraces the Ten Commandments, it not only embraces uh, very much more of what we call the law, in fact there is a sense in which it comprehends those first five books and most of the Old Testament. There's a sense in which that's true. And more than that, think, think the statutes and the ordinances. You know, it embraces in fact the Passover and the Exodus, the law, the actual law given at Mount Sinai, written by the finger of God on tables of stone, and it also includes the, re the revealing of the tabernacle, the giving of the pattern of the tabernacle. This was the covenant that God made with his children. This is the covenant that he, 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 he gave them at Mount Horeb, at, at Mount Sinai, and sealed with his own blood, sealed with the blood of, um, of an animal, typifying the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you begin to realize that, you get near to the heart of you see, in a very real way, really, what the Lord is saying is that they should remember all the way that the Lord has led them. That's all. All that he has given them, all that he has intended for them, all that he has provided for them, every part of this so great salvation and this great eternal purpose of God into which they have been saved. When the Lord says, remember, he means really, look, think back. Remember the salvation of God which he wrought for you through his grace and love whilst you were bond slaves in Egypt. Remember the way he plucked you out of Egypt and took you through the Red Sea and through the wilderness. Remember, remember the awful price typified in that little, perfect, spotless lamb, slain, and its blood sprinkled on the doorposts of the home. Think of the awful price of your salvation. When that covenant was made, blood was sprinkled. Do you remember how, how Moses sprinkled the blood on the book of the covenant and upon the people? And said, this day, God has made a covenant with you. Oh, it was as if the Lord was saying, remember. Remember not only how I have saved you. Remember not only how I have delivered you. But remember that it was at the most tremendous cost. That I have made you my own. That I have redeemed you. Remember. And they were not only to remember that, they were to remember two things, which I think we often forget. A broken law and an unbroken law. Have you ever thought of that? A broken law and an unbroken law. You remember the first time the law was made, it was written by Moses on tables of stone, and when he came down the mountain, he flung them upon the ground and they smashed the smithereens. It was a symbol of law broken. 
the second time, when because of the, you remember why? Because the people had made a golden calf and were worshipping it. It was a broken law. It was a symbol of sin. And then Moses went back up into the mountain. And what did God do this time? God didn't leave it to Moses this time. He wrote, it says, with his own finger upon tables of stone and gave back to Moses a new law, a new copy of the law. But this time, it was unbroken. What does it typify? Well, I don't know if you've ever seen the wonder of it, but it typifies, first of all, our sinfulness. The fact that we cannot keep the law. It is impossible not to break the law. We've broken it and we continue to break it. But the second part of the story, remember the unbroken law, speaks of Christ. The unbroken but full and fulfilled law of God, written by God, born of God, sustained by God, the one who was without sin, the one who fulfilled the law in every point, the one who finished the law, the Lord Jesus. And when really uh, the Lord said to remember, he was making their minds go right back to the time when the law was broken and when the time when God in grace gave them an unbroken law again. And you know there's a third thing they were to remember. They were to remember the eternal purpose of God. Yes, they were to remember that they'd been saved and redeemed into an eternal purpose. Let me put it another way. A purpose from eternity to eternity. Yes, God had saved them into a purpose like that. They were to remember that they did not choose him, but he chose them. They were to remember that behind his putting his hand upon Abraham, upon, uh, behind his putting his hand upon Moses, his taking out of the people, was his sovereign election, mysterious, profound, something that none of us can fully understand or pierce. But there it stands, the sovereign election of God. They were to remember that. Yes, it's in this book of Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, wherein hast thou loved me? Esau have I hated, but Jacob have I loved. Oh, the mystery of it. Yes, well, all this they were to remember, and they were to remember his sovereign choice of them as a people. They were to be his people. They were to remember that, <coughs> that he'd given, he had chosen, let me put it this way, he had chosen to dwell amongst them. That's the meaning of the tabernacle. He had chosen to dwell amongst them. Now when the Lord said, remember, it was all this that he was taking them back to. And in a sense, I defy anyone here to find any part of the Old Testament which is not comprehended by what I have said. In every part of the Old Testament you will find that one part or other of this is illustrated or interpreted. This was what the Lord was crying to them. This was the Lord's plea to them. Remember. And in remembering they would fear the Lord in love. Yes, they would reverence him. They would think upon his name. And they would explore and experience the wealth that was theirs in him.
And you know, it's so with us too. Do you know what the Lord says to us in days when the love of many shall wax cold? And it's already happening, and it's happening here amongst us as well. That as the pressure grows, and as the contradictions and inconsistencies become more and more apparent, as the atmosphere fills with darkness and evil things, so it will be that the love of the many will wax cold. Then the Lord's plea to us is, remember, remember. What must we remember? We must remember the salvation of God. Remember how we were saved. Remember what it cost the Lord to save us. Gethsemane and Calvary. We must meditate and reflect. That's why the Lord gave us his table. That we might each week come back and remember what it cost the Lord to save us. Remember the wonder of our salvation. And more than that, remember that the Lord Jesus is our righteousness. He is our unbroken and fulfilled law. He can live in us a new life. We must remember that we've been chosen by him to be a people. Yes, more. We've been chosen by him that we might become members of the body of Christ. We might become the house of God, the temple of God. We might become the bride of the Lamb. This is what God has chosen. And remember, if you will only remember, your love will, will be kindled continually. Is then is the Lord's cry to us to remember the acts of God and his love, to remember the covenant of his grace, sealed with his own blood, to remember our election and his eternal purpose. In this way, as we remember in these days, we too shall explore the Lord and experience the fullness which he has provided for us in himself. And how we just need to take heed of this in the days in which we live. The tempo of life is now so great that I believe there are very few people who remember the Lord and remember his ways. And this is one of the reasons why we have, so many of us are in danger. And then again there is this word expect, verse 5 and verse 6. They were to expect. But what were they to expect? They were to expect the great and terrible day of the Lord. For them, it was to be the sunrise of righteousness and the dawn of an eternal day. But they were to expect it. Are you expecting it? Are you expecting it? As we think something that great and terrible day of the Lord. Great, yes it is great. And it's also dreadful or terrible, awful. And yet for those who are faithful, those who are following the Lamb with us, whoever he goeth, that day is as the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his wings. For them it's a dawn of an eternal, a new eternal era. Now in Malachi's time, it was an expectation of Christ's first coming and summed up all that the prophets had previously foretold. In faith, they were to expect. And it's as if the Lord through Malachi underlines this. Look, you've got to walk by faith. But I want you to walk by faith and I want you every day to expect. 
to expect. I believe this was why their conversation was about the Lord. They expected the Lord to come and so their conversation was naturally centered in Him. They talked about Him together. They talked about His ways and, and, his, and his words and so on. And such expectancy would result, I want to underline this, such expectancy would result in a readiness to be refined and purified. Yes? And it would result in faithfulness to the Lord. And it would result in fellowship, true fellowship with one another. Now, you know, if you and I are expecting the Lord, a lot of things begin to happen. First of all, if the Lord were coming back this time next week, I tell you one thing, every person in this room would have the grace to get right. They would be right. Why? Because every one of us knows this, that if we don't get right, he'll put us right. That's why. In other words, we can either do it now and go into his presence joyfully, or when he comes, he'll have to put it right himself. And when you look at it like that, well, of course, if you're expecting the Lord to come, you're prepared to go through the refining and purifying fires. You're prepared to get rid of the dross now, because what does it matter? Things are not going to get better, they're going to get worse anyway. What's the point of frittering away life down here, when it might mean a real holding up one day of things up there? The difference will be clear one day between those who have been prepared to walk that way down here and there. It will be abundantly apparent. And so, of course, this expectancy produces an, a readiness to go through the purifying fires, whatever the cost. And uh, it produces a faithfulness to the Lord if you know the Lord's going to come back soon. It helps you in faithfulness. It helps you to walk before the Lord and walk with the Lord. And furthermore, you get you this true fellowship. Somehow or other, you, if you're going through it, fellowship's nearly always the true result. You begin to find out people who can understand and people who can help, people you can strengthen and people who can strengthen you. So true fellowship. They, they speak oft one with another. Yes, they were to await also a forerunner like Elijah who would, who would correct the backsliding and the looseness and the waywardness of the new generation, turning them back to the godliness and piety and faith of former generations. And this is very interesting. Why does it say in uh, verse 6, he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children? Well, it doesn't actually mean the actual personal domestic uh, situation, you know, children to fathers. It means the new generation to the old generation. And you know, it's a very interesting thing. At the end of every age, the new generation seems to bound away from the old generation altogether. And there comes a great rift. And we can see it today. The, the, the quietness and reserve, in a sense, and, and uh, a godliness, uh, I say may even mean a natural kind of godliness, of an older generation um, is left now. And things are brash 
and brazen in the name of, of modern enlightenment and much else. But you see, the whole objective of this Elijah-type ministry is to bring back that new generation to the piety and faith and godliness of the older generation, to make the, to make the present correspond with the past. Well, now all this, isn't this, and you know what the Lord says? It's very interesting. In verse 6, he points out that if this does not happen, then the Lord's coming would be a curse. Now, this word curse, if, you look at, if you've got your revised version with you, is um, an interesting word. It is the word used of, of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua, when the Lord cursed them. It is a sacred <coughs> committal or devotion to utter destruction. It's a sacred ban. Something solemn, something that you and I can't do. It's God who does it. And this is what the Lord says here. He said, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Not the people, but the land. Now, isn't it an interesting thing that it was exactly this that came as a result of the rejection of John the Baptist's ministry and the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, were finally rejected, God, God declared, God uh, uh, announced a ban on the land. And do you know that all down through the centuries that land has been devoted to destruction? The promised land. It's been the theme of continuous and consecutive strife and warfare devoted to destruction. It's a most remarkable thing, but I leave it. And I think from this word expect, we ought also to learn a lesson. We need to expect. We need to expect his coming. We need to expect the fulfillment of his purpose and of his word. Do you? Don't you find in you an evil heart of unbelief sometimes, which uh, can't wild up here, it believes in the theory of his coming and the theory of his kingdom and the theory of much else to do with the Lord's appearing, yet in, in the heart and in our life has no practical effect and influence? We need to really expect. Why? Because this blessed hope cheers. It cheers. And it strengthens. It strengthens you when you feel you're going to cast away your confidence. Then you remember. And you expect again. And you hope. And immediately you're strengthened to go on. And it does more than that. It, uh, it purifies. This blessed hope purifies. He that hath this hope purifieth himself. Yes, it's, it's a hope that purifies. Because you and I are ready to go through with the cost of it all. If, if we know he's coming, and if we're expecting his coming. I believe this is important because it enables us to submit to his purifying work, and it enables us to walk by faith in days of darkness, and not by sight or feeling. Well, now all this, and you know, we also can expect a very real work of God's Spirit at the end of this age.
Yes, and a larger type of prophetic ministry. And we can expect, and it will be, a th be thrilling if we live into these days, or through these days to the end, we shall see a recovery of the true nature of the church, if only in a remnant, and a preparation for the coming king. All this is bound up in the words, expect. Expect. Before the Lord comes, there's going to be a great heralding of his coming. There's going to be a great preparation for the Lord to appear. And we are to expect it. We shall know then that the, the Lord is at hand. Really at hand. Just, just round the corner, as it were, his coming is. When that great heralding work starts. Now, lastly this evening, and this is why I'm not going any farther, really. Um, how should we look upon the clear prediction contained in verse 5? Now, I know this is not very easy to explain, but it's very important. How should we look upon the clear prediction contained in verse 5? I've said that it's all summed up spiritually in two words, remember and expect. Now, I want to look at the actual prediction, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Now, how are we to look at this? Now, listen carefully, it's, it's really rather fascinating. Does this refer only to John the Baptist? Or does it speak of Elijah personally? In other words, is Elijah going to come? I personally would love that. Uh, is Elijah going to come? Personally, himself. Or does it speak of an Elijah? An Elijah. In other words, someone who will come in the power and spirit, character of Elijah. Or does it speak of a revival of prophecy rather than a particular person or persons? Now, here is our problem, and we're going to spend the last part of our time looking at this, because it's very important if we're living in these days. This is just what we've got to expect. We've got to all be on the lookout. I don't know whether you think I'm... Um, uh, silly, to, uh, stupid to say such a thing, but I believe God's word. And if we're living at the end of the age, we have got to be people who are looking for this, just as some look for John the Baptist and others to herald the Lord's come. We must be on the lookout for such uh, uh, a heralding of the coming of the Lord. Now first, was this prediction completely fulfilled in John the Baptist? Now let's have a look at one or two scriptures. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Was it completely fulfilled in John the Baptist? Luke 1 verse 13. <clears throat> the angel said to Zacharias, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Verse 17. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that's the Septuagint version, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now that's very clear, isn't it? It seems quite clear. It's a reference to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. 
Now let's look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, verse 10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before me. Malachi 3, verse 1. Then verse 14, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that would seem to suggest that John the Baptist is the fulfilment of this prophecy in Malachi. Now shall we turn to chapter 17 of, uh, M of Matthew, verse 11. He replied, Elijah does come, and he is to restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. All right. Now, Mark 9, verse 11. And they asked him, Why say that first Elijah must come and he said to them Elijah does come first to restore all things and how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him now also I want you to turn to John chapter 1 John chapter 1 Verse 19. Now listen to this. This is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said to him then, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And so on. Now, um, now, We've got our question. Was this prediction completely fulfilled in John the Baptist? Quite a few uh, believe that it was. But if you believe that it was completely fulfilled in John the Baptist, we have to explain John's specific denial that he was Elijah, or that he was the prophet. The prophet. Being surely aware of what the angel had said to his father before he was even born, that he was to be called John, 
and connecting him with this very, these very verses in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. It's most remarkable. Why did John absolutely and specifically deny that he was this? When he knew it, it, it is most remarkable. And then again, the Lord's own words suggest that it was not exhaustively fulfilled, but awaited a yet greater fulfillment. If you look at um, the two of those passages, uh, Matthew 17 and um, verse 11, He answered and said, Elijah indeed cometh and shall restore all things. And then again in Mark um, 9 verse 12. He said, Elijah indeed cometh first and restoreth all things. I mean, it's, the Lord suggests that he is going to come. And this restore all things is a reference to what we call the restitution of all things. So you see, there's a clear reference somehow, or at least a suggestion, that this, that Elijah is yet to come, and yet the Lord says, if you will have it, he's already come in John the Baptist, as if there's, there's two fulfillments of this um, prophecy, of this prediction. Uh, then again, um, I think you ought to note in all the versions, the, America, the uh, English Revised Version, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New English Bible, all of them uh, give the meaning as he will be coming. In other words, it's, in, it's still in the future. He's going to come. Also, and this I believe is very important, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we're told, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Now that seems to me to be almost conclusive. Then in that chapter we read in Revelation chapter 11, verse uh, 3 to 6, we have an Elijah type of ministry. We have sackcloth, we have fire, and we have the heavens being shut up, all of which are absolutely characteristic of Elijah. So we conclude that this prediction was not exhaustively fulfilled in John the Baptist, but awaits a greater fulfillment at the end of the age, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Now that's thrilling. Because it simply means that you and I, if we are living toward that time or in that time, um, may either see Elijah or may see an Elijah type of ministry. So the next question we have to ask, is it a prediction of Elijah's personal coming? Now, if it speaks of Elijah's personal return at the end of this age, as the Jews believed and believed, do you know that the Jews have always believed that Elijah is going to come. But do you know that to this day at the Passover, at a chair at the Passover, every Jewish family is left uh, uh, vacant for Elijah. A cup is left on the table with wine for Elijah. Every Jewish family, even though they may be liberal Jews, who keep the Passover, keep a vacant chair and a cup filled with wine that no one touches. It's for Elijah. 
Because they believe that Elijah is still to come and herald in the Messiah. Now you see, all this is very interesting. But it's much more than that. All the early church fathers all believed that Elijah was going to come personally. And uh, since then, there have been many others who have believed. Uh, all early church tradition is united in a belief that uh, it was Elijah who was going to come himself. Now, if this is so, it would indeed be unique, not only in secular history, but in the Bible itself. For never has a man returned to the earth to exercise a ministry who has been away for millenniums. Millenniums. Never. Uh, I do not doubt for a single moment that Elijah could come back, for he never died. He never died. He was translated, he never died. Uh, I don't doubt for a moment. But the point is, is it so? I mean, does the scripture suggest that he will, in fact, appear? Um, those who, uh, who believe that Elijah will actually come back tell us, first, they point to the fact that he never died, but he was translated, and secondly, they point to the fact that he did appear on earth with Moses where, at the Lord's transfiguration. So they say, of course, he could come back uh, again. Now, did the Lord mean that? In Matthew 17, verse 11, when he said, I say unto you, Elijah cometh first and shall restore all things. And again in Mark 9, verse 12. Does not the Lord's use of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 here, and of chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6, reveal that he, it was probably an Elijah more than the Elijah? Now, this is important. Thomas More has pointed out that if it was announced to us that a Luther would come, a Luther would come, before the great and terrible day of the Lord uh, appeared, every one of us would understood perfectly. We would understand perfectly that it wasn't the Luther who was to come, but a Luther who was to come. And we would have no uh, trouble about it at all. Now, it is possible that uh, this is the idea behind this. It's certainly the way the Lord used it concerning John the Baptist. He said he was Elijah. What he meant was he was an Elijah, you see. Now, are we to expect then, like John the Baptist, another Elijah, an Elijah, who will come to us at the end of this age to herald in the coming of the Lord? Others believe that the use of the name Elijah here is as a type or symbol of prophetic ministry. Uh, Elijah, as I've already pointed out to you, is representative of all the prophets in the Old Testament. They say, well, no, you, you're getting it all wrong when you think of the man Elijah. And he's used here as a symbol, you see, representing all the prophets. He, he represents prophetic function and ministry. And they would say it's not the man, and it's not a few men as such, but it's the function which is in view. At the end of this age, there's going to be a great revival of prophecy, divine prophecy. Now, that's not to be confused with the gift of prophecy we have in 1 Corinthians 14, which is another kind of prophecy altogether. We are talking about a revival of divine prophecy such as... as uh, constituted this book. 
kind of, of prophecy which is absolutely a thus saith the Lord and is the voice of God through and in a man. Now, of course, it's true that Elijah is a representative of, uh, is, is a symbol of prophetic ministry, but can we ever really divorce wholly the ministry from the man? Such, of course, as I've said, believe in a general renewal of prophecy at the end of this age. Still others would link these verses with Revelation chapter 11, which we read together earlier. Now, the, these verses certainly seem to be really connected uh, with uh, um, Revelation chapter 11. If you will look, I do hope some of you are not finding this boring. If ever this Elijah appears, you'll be very glad for this study, I might say. Um, uh, if you look at Revelation chapter 11 and keep it open before you, you will discover that this chapter has, in fact, got a lot of connection with Malachi, this chapter 11 of Revelation, and with Zechariah as well. Now, the interesting thing is that if you compare Malachi chapter 3, 1, uh, Behold, I send uh, my messenger and shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, you will discover that, that in this chapter 11 it's all to do with the temple. Now, it's very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Uh, you look uh, uh, from 1 to 3, and verse 19, you will discover the whole thing is bounded by the temple of God. They look, people who make a connection, feel there is a connection between Malachi and Revelation chapter 11, they look for not one man, but two. <laughs> or even a number fulfilling an Elijah type of prophetic ministry. Early church tradition identified these two prophets, listen carefully, with Elijah and Enoch. Because neither of these two ever died. And they believed, they believed that they, these were the two that would return. Since then, others have identified them as Moses and Elijah. And this would bring it even nearer to uh, uh, Malachi. Because they say, if you look carefully at Revelation chapter 11, you will discover that the miracles are exactly those of Elijah and of um, Moses. Um, some of the miracles were shutting up the heavens. Now, Moses never shut up the heavens, but Elijah did. Remember, for three years. And fire. Well, both of them were prophets of fire. But it says, turn the sea or the rivers or the waters to blood. Now, Elijah never did that, but Moses did. So they've identified these two with Moses and Elijah. And they also point out that it was Moses and Elijah who appeared with the Lord at the Transfiguration. And they say, these are the two that are going to come back and herald the return of the Lord, the final great uh, day of God. Well, now then, what are we going to say about all this? There are still others who see the figure two, two prophets, two witnesses, as symbolic 
They say the whole book of Revelation is symbol. And you cannot take it literally. And they say this figure two is the, is the symbol of fellowship, always two, and testimony or witness. He, the Lord always sent them out two by two. And, of course, all the way through Scripture, the figure two has this symbolic meaning. Now, they say uh, this figure is symbolic. And what is it symbolic? Well, they say they see a renewal of prophecy in the true church of God at the end of the age in the spirit of both Elijah and Moses. And they point out that it distinctly says in verse 2, do not measure the outer court outside the temple. Leave that out for it's given to the nations. And they say, you see, the church has so been invaded by the world that God will confine himself to the inner sanctuary. And within the outward church, there will be those who will be built up into the body of Christ who are the true church. Forget the outside thing altogether. Forget the outside thing. Get together and go on with the Lord and let those who want to be compromised with all this other thing in which, which is Babylonian to a degree, let it be. Let it be. Get out of it. You get into the inner, you see. Stay there. And they say in the inner, which is the purified remnant, uh, a recovery of the true nature of the church, there there will be a tremendous divine renewal of prophecy. Well, now then, and that this renewal of prophecy will be in the spirit of Elijah and Moses. In other words, it won't have, um, uh, it won't just be all love and grace, but there'll be fire and thunder and judgment in it as well. <coughs> now, it's true that the two olive trees mentioned here in Revelation 11. And do mark this, this is all I know, it's very complex, but if you listen carefully, um, it'll help you in one day. Um, the two olive trees that are mentioned here, and note, not the two branches, which are selected and uh, pointed out in Zechariah chapter 4. The two olive trees speak, we know, of spirit-anointed and spirit-filled ministry. We know that. And the candlesticks, we also know, speak of the church as the vessel of the testimony of Jesus, as the vessel of Christ's testimony and service. If you want to um, compare this, you'll have to look back to Zechariah 4, but I haven't time to go into that this evening. We know that. Now then, if that's so, these people say, you've got the two candlesticks, that speaks of the true church, Holding the testimony of Jesus, in spite of the fact that the outer court has been trampled underfoot by the unsaved. And then they say, you've got the two olive trees that speak of spirit-anointed, Holy Spirit-anointed, Holy Spirit-filled ministry and service and power. Well, now they say, here then it's obvious that this is not two people. It's a company. And therefore, this whole question of a, this promised prediction of Elijah must surely be a company, not a, not a local company, but a company of people all through the world who are faithful to the Lord, 
not got any headquarters down here, but I mean the headquarters of the Lord, faithful to him. Well, it really becomes more and more complex, doesn't it, as you go on. I believe, and here perhaps we will sum it all up, I believe the true interpretation of Malachi chapter 4, and I will not be dogmatic about this, because I would not be surprised if Elijah did appear with Enoch uh, at all. I would only be only too happy. But I, I just give us my own opinion. The true, anyway, I've always wanted to meet them both, and it'll only mean a little earlier, I suppose, than later in glory. But I believe myself that the true interpretation of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, and Revelation 11, 11 is probably <coughs> that it will be in a purified remnant, the true church, that there will be a wonderful revival of divine prophecy heralding the coming of the Lord. And I venture to say this, that I would not be surprised if we have not seen or are beginning to see the first faint signs of something happening. I um, am not against speaking in tongues, and I am not against healing as such. But I must say that there is uh, a most remarkable thing happening all over the world just at present. People in all various kinds of denominations being just simply shaken out of the rut uh, by not seeking anything, but suddenly finding that something is happening quite supernatural. Them. And although I cannot say that all or the most of them understand fully the purpose of God and understand exactly what's happening, it's awakening, something stirring, as if there's a sudden great shaking of the Lord's children everywhere. This may grow. It may just be a small little um, glimmer of something that's happened. Or it may grow and it may grow and it may grow until finally... It evolves into a new ministry created by the Holy Spirit altogether. One that is characterized by miracles, yes, and by much else, uh, but which has got depth as well. And this is the thing that has been so lacking in many healing movements and tongue movements and much else. It will have depth to it and foundation to it and grounding to it that will get it through the days that lie ahead. But if there is anything like an Elijah or a Moses type of ministry, then it's going to be absolutely heavenly and absolutely supernatural. There will be no explanation for it whatsoever. So I just wonder, I wouldn't be surprised if the first glimmerings of something that's about to break upon us has already started in different parts, and whether, though we have not yet uh, uh, participated in such our very prayer, God has used, not only here but elsewhere, in the secret place, to initiate, uh, or at least to develop something that is starting. Well, I say that just for our encouragement. We must ask ourselves, what ought we to look for? Should we look for a man, an Elijah, the Elijah? Should we look for two men, two uh, men in the spirit and power of Elijah, or uh, Elijah and Enoch, or Moses and Elijah? Or should we look for a general revival of prophecy? Whatever we may feel, 
before any visitation of God's wrath at any time, he has always in love and mercy sent a herald to summon people to repentance. It is the very nature of God to first warn. Even when he's warned and warned and warned, it is his very nature to warn distinctly and clearly. You know, Enoch warned the people, but he was taken to be with the Lord, but the Lord left Noah. And Noah warned the people right up to the day of the flood. And so it has been in every point right the way through that when, when some great crisis is looming up, then the Lord has sent a herald to summon people to repentance. Surely when that great and terrible day of the Lord is about to dawn, we shall see a revival of the prophetic office eclipsing all, all, I say all, that has ever preceded. I believe it. And it is no doubt true that in that purified remnant the Lord will raise up prophets of the stature of Moses and Elijah. I am not at all unsure that it's not only a company throughout the world, but there will be men within it, raised up by the Holy Spirit, equipped by the Holy Spirit, who have been prepared by the Holy Spirit, who will sound forth God's word in no uncertain voice. Dear friends, it would be totally unlike the Lord. After all we have in the divine record, that we call the Bible, to leave this world finally, with more inhabitants than it's ever had in its whole history, without such a supernatural visitation um, of himself in prophecy. It would be unlike him. No, I cannot help but believe that with the plains and with much else, we shall have, as it were, um, we shall see um, an amazing worldwide sounding forth of the coming of the Lord before he comes. Well, I may all be proved wrong. It's all down on the tape. And uh, one day I may have to eat my words on these things. But uh, I would not be surprised. I believe God's word gives anything character with the Lord himself. And what, and what will be the objective of such a ministry? What is its objective? Its objective is to prepare a way for the Lord's coming. To announce to the unsaved the coming king and the coming kingdom. And to challenge them to repentance and faith. To make ready for the Lord a people at his appearing. Well, I don't know when these words were given first to Malachi. I have no doubt many of the faithful thought, Oh dear Lord, we shall see it. But they didn't. They were laid to rest. And century after century passed away in the Lord's Sovereign timing, until some four centuries later, the Lord visited his people. I don't know, in Luther's day they thought the Lord was about to come. And uh, they made ready for it. There was a general sense that it was 
the law. The Jews were going back to their own land and everywhere there was a quickening. Surely the Lord's coming. But you know, centuries have gone by. And since then there have been at other times when God has visited his people a great sense the Lord's coming. The Lord's coming. And surely we too we have this sense as never before that the coming of the Lord draws nigh. How far off is it? It may be nearer than we think. I want, in closing, just to remind you, John the Baptist's ministry was the greatest prophetic ministry ever in world history to date. And it lasted precisely This is something which is overlooked by many people. I believe that before the Lord comes, there will be such a ministry. And it may be very short, but it will be powerful, it will be absolutely dynamic, and it will sound forth this word, the King comes to the ends of the earth, summoning everyone, everywhere to repentance and to faith in the Lord and preparing those of God's people who are willing to be prepared and made ready, summoning them to be, to, to as it were, prepare themselves for his appearing. May the Lord just help us then.